But good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Trust you are doing well. Good morning to those in the classic service and those watching online. Glad to have you. Um, I want to let you know I'm, I'm excited for something next Sunday. Um, I invited um, one of my best friends um, who used to be my, the worship pastor at my old church who replaced me at my old church as the lead pastor up there. And I asked him if he would come down and preach for us here. And he said yes, which he finally did. And I'm, I'm super excited about it because I know you're going to be blessed by him. And so I want to encourage you, please come next Sunday and hear him talk about Jesus being our Prince of Peace. Super pumped about that. And not only that, I'm really excited and yet timid to preach on the topic this morning. Because I know that if we were to be open and honest and vulnerable this morning to the Holy Spirit, I know that we will confront some truths and some hurts. And I know that if we are open to it, healing and restoration is possible. So I'm going to be praying. I'm going to pray now. And I'm going to pray that the Lord would just stir up our faith and give us ears to hear. And so I want to encourage you to pray with me this morning. Father, I pray that in my weakness this morning, you display your strength and grace. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open the eyes to our heart. God, where maybe we've built up walls of defense, would you break them? God, I pray that there is no guilt and no shame that would enter anybody's hearts this morning. Father, we pray that this morning you would be the wonderful counselor as we navigate this topic. You are our everlasting Father. It's in your heart to restore fatherhood. So speak, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, we are in the Advent season, and we're camping out primarily in one of the greatest Christmas prophecies we have in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And I'm going to read it again as, as a means of reminder, so that way we can kind of set the scene for this morning. 9-6, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and a government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We are looking at the four names that describe what this child will be like and what this child will do. This morning, we are camping out on the name Everlasting Father. Now, this name, the way they put it in here, like, it's, it's actually significant. It's, it's massive. The thought is so grand. Like, if, if the, the word everlasting isn't enough to mess with your intellectual capability, attach it to Father and allow that then to get to the intimate parts of our hearts. This is a tough subject to get to. Like, I can't remember what happened yesterday, and I, I'm supposed to try to figure out what everlasting means from eternity to eternity, no end, no time. He's our everlasting Father. Like what happens inside of you? What, what thoughts or feelings come into your mind or in your heart when you think about your earthly father? 
And some of you have great thoughts. Great, great memories even of, of your dad. And those are great things. And you should hang on to them. And you should be thankful for them. And some of you it may have chosen, I'm going to expect, maybe you have chosen to remember the good and yet somehow have forgotten the bad. Maybe you've blocked it out because you don't want to think about your dad in that light. Some of you might be discovering that as you age, you're entering into your 30s, your 40s, or maybe even your 50s, that you are discovering, oh my goodness, I have father wounds. I had no idea I had them, or at least I had no idea how significant they influenced how I live. Others in this room, the thought of your father is hard and painful. But the reality is, Fathers have significant influence in our lives. Fathers have significant influence in our lives, regardless of what culture in the world is trying to say about fatherhood. Because they're doing a great job of minimizing it and making it a laughing stock, and even say that some levels of fatherhood is toxic. Fatherhood is significant. Our fathers, either good or bad, have significant influence on our lives. Let's do a survey for a moment. Everyone participate, yes? Okay. Show me by a raise of hands, how many of you have a father? Great. This applies to everyone. Today, it's estimated that there are 74 million fathers in the world. And David Popeno, in his book, Life Without Father, he wrote this, and I have this quote up here for you. American fathers are today more removed from family life than ever before in our history. And according to a growing body of evidence, this massive erosion of fatherhood contributes mightily to many of the social problems of our time. Fatherhood is significant. What was fascinating was this was written 25 years ago. And this issue has only progressed even further. Studies have shown, like I looked at this, like what are the latest fatherhood statistics in 2022? The, the studies are showing over and over and over that homes with an absent father, now that is defined either like literally your father is non-existent, he's not at home, or he is at home but is emotionally or relationally absent, okay? 71% of all high school dropouts stem from a absent father home, the percentage of adolescents that struggle with substance abuse and find themselves in treatment facilities, 75% of them come from fatherless homes. 71% of teenagers who are pregnant come from an absent father home. 71 or 63% of youth suicides happen in households with an absent father. 85% of children with behavioral disorders are from homes with an absent father. Fatherhood is important, and the culture is full frontal attack on it, and it's important, and what we need to understand is that we are wired to need fathers, 
And even though we're talking about fatherhood, by no means, please don't hear this, that motherhood is insignificant. It absolutely is. But we need to dive into this topic and see the significance of why this child is named Everlasting Father. The science is overwhelming. It consistently is showing fatherhood is essential. Fatherhood has shaped your life, regardless if you realize it or not, regardless if you are willing to admit it or not. It influences, listen, it influences how we see and how we interact with God, especially God as Father. Because we filter our experience with our earthly father. We, ex- we filter God through that lens. And here's the reality. All, all of our fathers, even us right now who are dads, we are imperfect. All of our fathers are imperfect and broken. This is our experience. So why describe this child This son who is given with such an intimate and powerful relational name, Everlasting Father. What is this meant to stir up inside of us? Like what kind of hope was this to produce in the kingdom of Judah in this moment? Like what kind of healing is supposed to happen as a result of having a child who is to come to be the Everlasting Father? Now, maybe you thought this, maybe you didn't. But I want to just like clear up any theological confusion that you might have as you hear this. Because clearly, we know that this child or the son is Jesus. We know that. Right? And so if, if you know, we believe in a monotheistic God who's Trinitarian. God the Father God the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we go, well, we know that Jesus is not the Father. He's the Son of God. So is this now like a contradiction in our scriptures? Like we know that Jesus actually came to show us the Father, to make a way to the Father, right? So like what's going on here? In fact, I've, I've known people who've used this passage and say, this is why I can't believe in Christianity, why the Bible is not trustworthy because it's full of contradictions. And I'm just like, hold on, hold on. You have to understand cultural context. In the historical context that this passage finds itself is in what we call the ancient Near East in the way that they saw kings, The way the people thought of kings and even the way kings saw themselves was as a father figure. So a king was to be fatherly over their kingdom. That's how they saw this. Now logically, a king in these times is not the literal biological father of everyone in his kingdom. To be the king is to symbolically or to act like a father. So let's just think about the history of Israel for a moment. And I got a slide here. Have you ever done this? It's really fascinating. A list of kings. I know you can't see it. It's okay. It's just like this list of kings from Israel and Judah. And it's like overwhelmingly bad kings. 
bad kings. Like these kings were to be fatherly. They were to act as father to the kingdom. And even though like you will see on moments, like there are some good kings listed there, like overall they were good. But yet if you look into their story, they they still did some bad things. And the way it was set up was how the king lived, how the king um, led the nation, the decisions the king made to trust God or not trust God significantly influenced the kingdom. So in context, King Ahaz, who was the king at this time that this prophecy was given, failed as a father to the kingdom of Judah. He failed. And as a result of that failure, chapter 7 and 8 tells us that the result is the people are walking in darkness. He failed to trust God. So for this child to be called an everlasting father is not so much telling us about his role in the Trinity. It's more describing to us that this child's character will be fatherly. His character towards us will be father-like. He will be the forever father, the everlasting father, the eternal king of kings whose kingdom is without end. Now this is absolutely important as well. Because in this time in history, in this culture, it was very patriarchal, right? Like meaning the the father had all the authority over the family or the tribe. He had all of the influence. He had the full weight of responsibility of the family or the tribe. Which is why we see in verse 6 that the government shall be upon his shoulder because the father that oversaw the family had the full weight of responsibility on his shoulder. So in other words, the father was to be the source of the well-being of the family. He was to be the source of protection, of provision, of peace, of security, of commitment. These fathers were to do that. The fathers were to be the sole source that you could and should trust in. We grow up still understanding that our fathers are to be, in a lot of ways, the source of our well-being. We should be trusting our fathers for that, but then they are imperfect and they are broken and then they wound us. And that causes all sorts of issues and problems in our hearts. How should a good father be described? How should a good father be described? What words would you use? Loving, providing, protector, compassionate, patient, gentle, a leader, committed, fun, I hope so, sacrificial, strong, And we all know this to be true, that none of our fathers have ever been perfect, not even close. And not only that, none of our leaders, those in authority in places of government, they've never been perfect, not even close. 
Therefore, this tells us that we will have hurts, letdowns, and wounds that come as a result from fathers and from those who are meant to lead and oversee and protect our well-being. And this causes darkness in the heart. And what's true now is true then. And we see this in Isaiah 8, 21 through 22. Look at this. In this context of realizing that Ahaz, their king, who is to be their father, failed them. Look at what happens in that they pass. They, meaning the people of Judah, they pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king. The order is important and the order is intentional. They will first speak contemptuously to the father figure and then their God. Because they are not being protected. And so resentment and anger and bitterness shows up. They, they speak ill and curses at the king and it moves to God. And then what happens in verse 22? They look to the earth, which is another way of saying they're looking for another source of well-being. They're looking for another source of life on this earth. But they will not find it because all they see is distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. This is the context that this comes in. And then in verse 2, this hope comes. The people who have walked in darkness, who have been under this failed father, they have seen a gray light. It, the dawn is coming. They can see the sun rising on the horizon, and his name will be everlasting father. This name stirs up Judah with great anticipation. We have been told that there is one who is coming who will be like a father to us, whose reign as king will be everlasting because every other king lives and dies. Our fathers on earth, they live and die. And we're left then to fend for ourselves. But he will be everlasting. One who will come, who will protect perfectly, who will provide perfectly, who will care for us perfectly, who will love us perfectly, who will sacrifice perfectly, one who is 100% committed to us forever. Beloved, listen, where our fathers have failed, Jesus did not and will not. Where our leaders have failed, Jesus did not and will not. Verse 7. And of the increase of his government and of peace, which we're going to hear about next Sunday, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. A forever kingdom where this everlasting Father will be our perfect source forever. Who in this room has a hard time understanding everlasting? <laughs> I mean, if you actually sat and tried to think through with your finite brain what eternal life is, it begins to hurt. 
It's a hard concept because we are created beings. And by that fact, we are finite. And God created time and space for us. So how can we comprehend someone who is outside of time and space and yet enters and fills time and space that he created? Like this is a bizarre thought to get your head around. I, Psalm 90, I love like Moses' prayer here in Psalm 90 because it's like he's trying to say it in certain words. And if you think about it, it's actually ridiculous, but he doesn't know how else to say it. Verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. From the beginning of time, you've been our refuge. You've been our source of safety. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you have formed the earth and the world, before anything began, from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Now you think about that. You're like, well, that feels redundant. Is there like a beginning everlasting and an end everlasting? Like he just is like, I have no idea how to describe how God is outside of time. It's like from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, he just is. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. We are temporal. We have an expiration date, for lack of better words. Like, you got a a deadline. Like, that was a pun. Like, Like, that was an accidental pun. Like, there's an end But for a thousand years in your sight are but yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night or a blink of the eye, which again is a ridiculous statement because we're trying to compare God's eternality through the lens of time. But you can't do that because God is outside of time. Like this is, this is hard. To be everlasting, now this is important, to be everlasting means that God is not dependent on anything. He doesn't need anything. We are all dependent upon another source. We need another source to give us protection and provision and love as we enter into this world. But God is fully independent. He is not dependent on anything. There is no beginning with God. Genesis 1.1 where it says in the beginning. Well, that word began doesn't affect or apply to God. It was written for us to help us understand God in relation to time and creation because God was and God just is. Time is a human thing. Measurement is a human thing. God is not in time. So I thought, how can I confuse you and yet try to simplify this thought? Here you go. We live in the now, in the was, and the will be. Right? We live in, we have yesterdays and todays and tomorrows. However, time began in God and ends in God and it doesn't affect God. God has no future. He has no past. He has no present. He just is. He's unchanging forever. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He's fully present in the moments past, and he's fully present in the present, and he's fully present in all things in the future in the present. There you go. Isaiah 46. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. In order to be God, you have to be able to say this, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Here's the problem and why I'm bringing this up. 
we are slaves to time. We, are, we all live as if death is the end of all things. And so we oftentimes as believers lose fact of the sight that we were created for eternity. We live as if this is all there is. And so we structure our lives around the awareness of death. So we try to live our best lives now with all of the finite resources and time chasing after all temporal things. But what this creates inside of us is this scarcity mindset where we Constantly look to the earth for another source. But if all you do is look to the earth, all you will find is darkness. Because everything on earth is dependent on the one who is eternal. I can't remember who said this, but it just produces this sense of meaninglessness if there is no eternal life. Death is always there, and it makes a mockery of all of our projects. Like, that's a sobering and sad thought. If death ends all things, then all that we do and all that we are has this underlying sense of meaninglessness. But we all know it's not true. There's this nagging sense that death is wrong. Death shouldn't happen. And that's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 speaks into, that God put eternity in our hearts. And so we constantly struggle if we keep looking to the earth for the source of life. And that's why father wounds are so significant. God created us and he created time for us. We are completely dependent on others for life. We're dependent on food, water, and air. We need all of these things. Because we were created for eternity, as St. Augustine says, our heart finds no rest until it finds it in you our everlasting Father. Now, think of this. A child is born. The eternal one, if you got the picture of the baby, the eternal one comes. Like, this mystery is so great, and it's so grand that it changes everything. The eternal one Outside of time, outside of space, with no beginning and no end, the one who isn't dependent on anything comes as a baby, which is vulnerable and fragile and now dependent. Like, the immeasurable one now can be measured. The, the one who is beyond immense can now be weighed. Almost as if, like you say, when Jesus was born, he was seven pounds, five ounces. That is a thought that should break the mind and make the heart rejoice. That this child, who is known as Jesus, has always been but he came as a baby. John chapter 1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Jesus. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He's our source. He's the Father of eternity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus entered this world and took on flesh to be the exact radiance or the exact imprint of God, as it says in Hebrews 1.3. He showed us up close and personal the flesh, in the flesh, the character and the heart of God. He lived a life that shows us what it means to truly be loved, what it means to truly be protected, to be truly cared for, provided for, to show us what a father being committed to us looks like in means unconditionally. He wasn't just another man from Israel who would be set up as another king to set up another temporary kingdom. He wasn't just another moral leader or teacher. No, he was the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, prince of peace, the sole source of life and of our eternal life. To all who would receive him, to all who would believe in his name, he would grant them the ability to become Children of God. He is our source. Jesus said it. I'm the living water. I'm the bread of life. I am the way, the life, and the truth. He alone provides for us like the perfect father should. Galatians 4, 4. In the fullness of time, the everlasting father had come. God sent forth his son who was to have a character that is father-like, born of a woman, born under law. Like this is like remarkable when you think about the context of who God is. To, why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus, this baby, this child, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. I'm going fast because there's a lot to read. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, he's remarkable, large and eternal, right? So it's like, how do I think about that? And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Here it is. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, looking to the earth, looking for a source of life because we're broken and wounded people, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. Because Jesus is the wonderful counselor, 
There was a plan in place before time began that Jesus would display his might by dying for us on the cross, which displays to us like no other his fatherly character. Here is how I provide. Here is how I protect. Here is how I love. Here is how we adopt. Here is my commitment to you. That's what an everlasting father does. He's the father we've always longed for. Don't allow your pride to minimize that thought. He's the father you've always longed for. You always wish you had. Even if you had a good father, that's what I'm saying, no shame or guilt. The best of fathers are still imperfect. Through Jesus, fatherhood is restored in the most beautiful of ways. And all of us need this. Because we all have a hard time seeing God because of the cloud that hangs over our head that we have, that have landed on us because of our experiences with our earthly fathers. It's hard sometimes to see the posture that God the Father has towards us because of the posture your father had towards you. Maybe your father's posture towards you was the you could be or you could do better. Maybe your father's posture was the one who was never satisfied. You got an A, why didn't you get an A plus? Dad, I went two for four. Great, why didn't you go three for four? Maybe they compared you to other people. I wish you were more like this. Why can't you be like this? It's just never good enough. And you never felt like you could just be like satisfied with who you were. And then you end up like creating this narrative inside of you that you have to achieve something in order to have some worth. That I'm not good enough. And if I were good enough, then people would approve me. Prove of me. Some of us really have that posture. That was our dad. Never satisfied. Could always do more. Could always do more. And even if he was well-meaning, he didn't realize what was happening. Maybe the posture that your dad had was the volatile dad. You just didn't know what would happen when dad got home. It's almost like dad's a ticking time bomb or he's got landmines around and you don't know like if you'll accidentally step on one and just the littlest things could set him off. Maybe it's because he had struggled with drinking or drugs or maybe it was the stress of life or finances or work or what have you, but he was just always on edge and you were honestly kind of scared of him. And so you wanted to appease him. So you tried to do things to minimize and do some damage control. Maybe because of his volatility, he hurt you verbally, emotionally, and unfortunately, some of us have felt this physical abuse. You live in fear of authority figures. And at the end of the day, what it produces inside of you is resentment. Maybe your dad's posture towards you was emotionally distant. Like for all intents and purposes, he was present in the home. 
He was a good person, did good things, provided really well. But he never emotionally connected with you as a, as a son or daughter. Never looked at you in the eye and said, I love you. Well, why? Because I love you. Never heard the words, I'm proud of you. Maybe you never heard, you're a good son. You're a good daughter. And so you grow up wondering, why didn't dad say these things to me? Is there something wrong with me? He never made you feel special, so you grow up maybe thinking you're not special. You find it hard to connect emotionally with other people because it was never given to you. Or maybe your dad was the absent dad. Maybe you never met him, never knew him. Maybe he left. Maybe he's at home, but he's absent. Always at work, always doing this, always golfing, ever, whatever it is. He doesn't go to your games. He doesn't go to your plays, concerts, musicals, etc. And you begin to believe that his absence is a personal choice to reject you. Friends, many of us have experienced dads this way. And one of the reasons why I believe, one of the many reasons why I believe God sent his son as his child to be fatherly was to show us to have his rays of light break through the clouds that distort how we see the everlasting father. You want to know the father's posture towards you? You want to know God's posture towards you? Luke 15, verse 11. This is the story of the prodigal son, but I'm telling you right now, we do the story injustice by calling it the story of the prodigal son because it's not the story of the sons. It's the story of the father. Look how Jesus starts this. There was a man. There was a father who had two sons. And the two sons represent really all of us. The rebellious son who completely says, God, I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. And I'm going to go do my own thing in a land far away. And... <laughs> Things have a happen of just like falling through and he gets to the end of himself, like darkness and gloom and absolute brokenness, such despair, banded by his friends. He, he gets so low that he's like, eat, like longing to eat pig food. I'll go home because I don't know what else to do. Comes up with this game plan. He, he recreates the script and I want to say this. And in the story, this man, this father, this is where it's shocking but I want to ask you this question because as the story unfolds, as Jesus is saying this, the son begins to make his way home and the father is looking and he sees his son. If you were to put maybe your earthly father in the place of that father, what would he do? But that is not the posture that God has. By the very fact that he's on the hill looking tells us that he never stopped longing for his son. And when he saw his son, he hiked up his robes in a display of embarrassment. I don't care what people think. I ran to him. He hugged him. This dude stunk. Pig filth. Hasn't brushed his teeth in who knows how long. And the father kisses him. Moved with compassion, the son starts to relate the story. I'm so sorry, I'm sorry. He's like, shh, give him the ring. Put the sandals on him. Put the best robe on. We're going to have a party. That's the father's posture towards you. 
And there's another son who was like all full of himself because he thought that by what he did showed value. I have to be good enough. I have to earn this. I have to da-da-da-da-da. Well, the son, younger brother comes home. He doesn't like it. He goes out. In that culture, it's mass insult to the father for the older brother to do that. But what does the father do again? He goes out to the older son in compassion. The father's posture is to never turn you away. Ever. The Father's posture is to always invite you in. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, He loves you. And He always invites you in because He's our everlasting Father. Instead of having a be better, do better posture, Jesus, as our everlasting Father, accepts you fully as you are. Not you have to do X, Y, and Z or be better, achieve this. No. He's our source of life. He gave up himself because we could not. He became our provider by his sacrifice. That's what a heavenly Father does. That way, nothing could ever separate you from the love of God. Nothing. He's not someone who says, I'm not satisfied with you. I wish you could do more. Why didn't you do this more? Jesus is not volatile. You don't have to be scared of Jesus. Psalm 103.8 says that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the word that stands out to me is the word abounding. It's overflowing. And if it's overflowing, it means it's consistent in steadfast love. His love for you will never waver. It will never wax or wane based upon you. That's good news. He isn't emotionally distant. But he comes right to our hearts. He emotionally engages with us. Romans 5.5, God poured out his spirit in us. He, He poured out his love inside of us to know without a shadow of doubt that he loves us. Zephaniah 3.17, God rejoices over us with gladness. Your father in heaven is singing over you. He will quiet you by his love, and he's exalting you with loud singing. That's Jesus saying, I love you, and I'm proud of you. And Jesus will never reject you. He'll never leave nor forsake you, Hebrews 13, 5. It would do us well to remember Romans 5, 8, that God showed us his love, that while we were still sinners, He died. Nothing can separate us. Nothing. He will never forget us. He's etched us into the palm of his hand. Where our fathers have fallen short and wounded us, Jesus never will. He's our everlasting father. He's the one that we long for. He works all things out for the good of those who love him. 
That's what an everlasting father does. And I know that, one, I went long, but I also know that this may have stirred up a lot of emotions and feelings and maybe even hurts. Some good, good memories, good emotions, which are great. And some bad, may even made you angry. But I want you to look to Jesus. Look to the cross. See his love for you. See how he dealt with death for you by resurrecting. And look to the future promise of restoration. Right now, you may be walking in darkness, looking to the earth for another source of life and hope. I want you to hear this this morning. You really have two options, and that's it. You can keep looking to the earth, and I promise you, all that you will find is darkness. Or you can look to the everlasting Father. Believe and receive him, and he will give you eternal life. I was thinking about this because last week we said if there's anyone here who would like to believe in Jesus, I was like, I want to help people understand this. What does it mean to believe and to receive? There was this guy who was a tightrope walker, did all sorts of crazy things on the tightrope road. He would walk across Niagara Falls, and one time he got done, and there was a crowd there, and he looked to the crowd, and he said, you guys believe I could walk across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And the crowd went, yeah, we believe, we believe. Then he said, who of you is willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Someone did. <laughs> they lived. But that's, that's what it is. Are you willing to get into that wheelbarrow? You are my source. You are the great light. Allow him to restore fatherhood in you. And, and I want to speak to dads in this room right now because you may, you, you may be feeling this sense of like, oh man, that's me. Maybe you're seeing your dad show up and how you're fathering and you're like, I don't want that. Maybe you have estranged relationships with your sons or daughters. It is not without coincidence that the last verse in the Old Testament before Jesus came is Malachi 4.6. Look at this. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Jesus makes a way for reconciliation. So if you find yourself as a dad right now going, I don't want to be one of these four, confess it. Ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. And if maybe you as a dad have an estranged relationship with your children, pray that it could be reconciled because it's possible. Because Jesus reconciled us. Join me in prayer. Lord, um, 
like I said, be our wonderful counselor. Lord, thank you for speaking truth into our hearts and leading us. Thank you for showing us what an everlasting father looks like. Thank you that your posture to us is not one that's based on performance. It's not appeasement. It's not cold and distant. It's loving and gracious and fully committed and sacrificial. Thank you so much. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who may need to simply say yes to you. To get in the wheelbarrow and trust and believe that you are our everlasting father. That you made a way for us to be adopted as sons and daughters. Thank you for that. Father, I want to pray for the dads in this room. Maybe the grandparents in this room, the grandfathers. God, I pray that there is no guilt or shame for maybe things done in the past, that you would free them from the past. God, I pray that you would empower them through the power of your Holy Spirit to give them the grace needed to reflect you well. Lord, I pray for the fathers in this room who may have um, significant relational distance with sons and daughters. I pray, God, that through your power, you would reconcile that. So now, Lord, I pray that you would use this last song to move our hearts closer to you. In Christ's name, amen.